Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I got an email from a listener who brought up a point that is, of, I think, very germane at the moment this year. I'm focusing on issues of burnout of veterinarians and not one more vet and the pressures that they're under. And one of the topics that's come up over the years, but the Victoria Wells, who worked in shelters as a trainer and behavior consultant for decades, brought up to me in her email was that the burden on people working in shelters is really not appreciated enough and we don't give them enough support. So, Victoria, thank you for writing to me, and thank you for taking the time from your private dog training and consulting business to talk about something that mattered to you a lot at the time, and I'm glad it still matters to you now. Right. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I think this is a topic that really needs to be discussed, and ideas have to be generated to solve this problem. What do you see as the solution? Of course, shelters are over shelters are overwhelmed and overburdened with too many animals, leaving aside the issue of the pandemic and pandemic puppies and people's changing behavior. In the end of the day, shelters are full of animals that somehow nobody wants and shelter workers doing really hard work, really emotionally and physically hard work. What what do you think the solution would be other than compassion and awareness on the part of the people volunteering or adopting? Well, I think a number of things should be implemented in order to prevent compassion fatigue, which can be extremely detrimental when you work in a shelter. And it's a long-lasting effect as well. Because if you consider uh, people who work in shelters, especially those with larger live release rates, which means that the dogs are there until they're adopted, um, people become extremely attached, and especially in a situation where I worked most of my um, life as a, sh- as a shelter employee, was in the cruelty division. So there is a lot of attachment there, a lot of bonding, and a lot of trauma that the employees witness, and they absorb themselves. So my first feeling is that prior to somebody being uh, brought on board as a direct care employee for these dogs, especially dogs that are um, behaviorally challenged, they've gone through uh, physical trauma, 
uh, is that these people are made fully aware of what they might experience. The the uh, details of the job, the emotional burden that they may have to incur. So, in my opinion, onboarding should be a more detailed process where there is a very uh, there's a very in depth orientation for people who are going to work with these uh, these sorts of dogs with such challenges. In other words, the people that get dogs and then they're told oh, the dog just doesn't like men, but he'll get over it, that kind of thing? Well, I'm speaking specifically uh, to when uh, to sh- sheltering. So people who typically work in shelters are very empathetic, compassionate people who have a mission. You know, they, their mission is to uh, work with the dogs, make them feel comfortable in their environment, and help them uh, to create bonds. Uh, so... When somebody applies for a job in an animal shelter that entails direct care, whether it's in the kennel, whether it's a veterinarian, whether it's a member of the behavior staff, I think the, the, there, there is a responsibility that lies on the shelter to, to inform these people prior to them even taking the job that there are emotional components to it and spell out those emotional components. So you think that people are really just hired at an hourly rate and they've said, gee, I love dogs or cats. And you don't, the ASPCA is a pretty fancy shelter. It's got massive amounts of money, a huge board of directors of all kinds of well-heeled, deep-pocketed, deeply caring people. So it would seem to me that the ASPCA would be some kind of a paragon of having the resources, if you want to call them resources, certainly the wherewithal, to inform and protect their staff. There are shelters that are so drastically poor, and I've seen them in a lot of the films that have been submitted to the Dog Film Festival and the Cat Film Festival, shelters that are holes in the ground with one person looking after whatever has been dumped there overnight, that the idea of helping them is unthinkable. But in a shelter, I mean, they're there out of extraordinary St. Francis kind of concern for animals, and there's no one there for them. But in fancy shelters, whether it's Austin Pets Alive or the ASPCA or uh, Marin County Humane Society, that have loads of money and fancy buildings and a lot of resources, are you saying that they're not thinking enough about the mental preparation of their workers? Well, I think that it it is important that they inform the people who um, apply for these jobs that entail direct care to really give them some insight as to what they might see, what might affect them, how it's going, you know, how how caring for animals is going to affect them emotionally and physically. Because I think a lot of people come into the position of working with animals in a direct care capacity. Um, they, they, they want to, I'm not going to say they want to save the world, but they are very gung ho to, to yes. do, you know, give everything that they possibly can physically and emotionally to the well being of these dogs. However, they are not ultimately prepared for eventu- eventualities that might occur. And there are traumatic uh, traumatic uh, situations in every 
animal shelter. I've not only worked with the ASPCA, but I've worked at Dutchess County SPCA. And of course, I've also been involved with AC&C, the animal control facility. Right. And while they all have different financial abilities and resources, I don't think there's ever a time where they can't just inform people prior to them coming in about what they are going to absorb emotionally, what they might see as far as the deterioration of dogs, even though they, they seem to be doing well. It's an animal shelter. It's not an ideal place for these animals right. to be. And sometimes their behavior takes a turn for the worse. And that's going to impact not only the dog, of course, but the employees greatly. So I think I think more um, information prior to anybody being hired to care for these dogs who are in these critical critical situations is going to save a lot of people um, who might not be prepared for the job at, in the you know at all because it, there's a difference between loving dogs wanting to care for them but having the constitution to work in these sort of situations that's an interesting point because it isn't a fine line it's a very clear line and often people that work in rescue, not necessarily in a paid position in a shelter, but work in rescue, and a lot of the people are volunteers, the Animal Care and Control in New York City, had the New York City Mayor's Alliance that brought together many volunteer groups to take some of the burden off of the city shelter. But a lot of those people are there to save the world one animal at a time, and they do wear their heart on their sleeve. There's no doubt about it. And right. that's a dangerous place to wear your heart when you're dealing with the cold, cruel world, animals coming in in terrible condition, or as you say, with even the best efforts, deteriorating physically or mentally because incarceration is really harsh on living beings. That right. It's just, it's, it, it's far from optimal, to put it mildly. But do right. they not have, in some places that, again, have the resources which kind of at the end of the day is a catchphrase for money, to have mm -hmm. some kind of a group gathering of like a decompression group where once a week or at some interval, everyone sits together and shares their, uh, their concerns, their questions, their pain, their fears. It, does that happen or is there just – in your experience, is there no such I thing? No, there is, because I think that it's more widely recognized that this could be detrimental to employees in the long run, this exposure, um, this, these experiences without any support system. So even if it is something where um, now I just I, I just uh, read something about in California in one of the SPCAs, what they do is the management monitors people for any signs that wow. they have. Yeah, they might have gone through, um, or they're experiencing compassion fatigue, and they're made aware of the specific symptoms. And if they see it, they catch it, and they speak to the people. Um, it doesn't ha necessarily have to be a formalized counseling right. program. However, it's really important to acknowledge a person's distress and allow them to speak about it, but also give them some some time to to 
sort of decompress mm-hmm. from that particular situation because sometimes traumas happen in, 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 in moments. For instance, if a kennel attendant, um, person who works in the kennel, is taking a dog out or we're, uh, cleaning their kennel, and they, this happens a lot, actually. It happens more than you think. Dogs that are seemingly well-bonded with them never have shown any aggression. There's, there's nothing for these people to be alarmed, and they care for these dogs on a daily basis. But one day, the dog is set off by something. Yes. And then the, um, the kennel attendant, who had such a strong bond with this dog, might get injured. You know, Got that it. in itself is very scary. Yes. But also, it's sort of that feeling... This dog was my friend. Right. And all of a sudden, they, you know, they've turned on me. That is a very traumatic, um, a traumatic experience to go through. And if that, that sort of situation or any other situation arises that is just shocking, traumatic, I think it's really up to the, um, the management to monitor people. Because working in an animal shelter is not just an occupation, it's a calling. Well said. And you take it home with you, you know, you take all of these experiences home with you and they affect you in so many different ways. That's that's an extremely good point about the broken trust and feeling like you are the buffer between that row of kennels and the dogs that are stuck in it until the day they might have to go to be euthanized because nobody wanted them. So every day you're looking at dogs on some level of death row, which already is hurting your heart because you know that most of them, all of them could have a nice home, could be a good pet, could don't deserve to be there. So you're already walking around with a heavy heart, and then one of them turns on you because, as you say, maybe other things happen to rattle that dog. Maybe the dog in the next cage. Maybe somebody walked mm-hmm. by that reminded them of some bad trauma they, the dog, had had. Or maybe they're just fed up with being in there, and they turn on that human, and now the human has to question that relationship that they had. And and I do think that a lot of people that work in shelters and work in rescue are in some way, not selfishly, but, you know, armchair Freudian analysis, working out some of their own issues of of feeling that they need to be saved or they need to be loved or they need to show, give back to the world what maybe they didn't get. So now it has ruptured that very thing they came there that they were getting fulfillment from, the feeling of being a savior, of being a caregiver, of being the solution. And now suddenly they have to question that, and their cage is rattled, if you will. Their emotional cage is rattled. It's a really good point. I'm not sure that that management in most shelters has the time, the the wherewithal, the training themselves, the the space in their own brain to notice it. But it is a really good point for volunteers who come and go from shelters and other shelter workers to turn to each other at the lunch break or the tea break and say, how's your day going? Are you okay? I I think just even turning to other people, you know, that thing with Meghan Markle that shocked so many people when a reporter said to her, are you doing okay? And reportedly, it was the only person who'd asked her that in a year and a half when she hadn't been doing Mm. okay. She'd had miscarriages. She was in a family that was complicated. Just saying to another person, are you okay, 
or I notice that you don't seem quite yourself today, maybe even that's a good beginning rather than saying management should have something in place because then it becomes the other is is responsible. I think we all right. could take some responsibility and just look to our left and right and make sure the other people in the field with us that are warriors on the front of abandoned animals, that they're all feeling like at least the other humans have their back, you know, the people right. that are in the trenches with them. I think it's a really good point. Just in, in finishing up, Victoria, tell tell a little bit about the dog training you do in New York City because people are always looking for a good trainer and it's hard to find one who's really got a lot of good experience and is smart. Well, I work actually for a uh, one firm and then a firm of my own. Uh, one firm, I'm a consultant for Jordan's uh, Pet Care, and that's okay. in Brooklyn. And then I also have my own business called The Urban Intuitive. Well, and, I like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a great name. I had to add that in there because, you know, I, I developed a Reiki program for animals. So I also do Reiki uh Reiki for dogs. I'm like, well, that that sounds like it, it's a uh, suiting name for a business. That's so funny. Well, the urban intuitive sounds like someone who has one of those third floor walk ups and is going to read your tarot cards. But that's not what you mean. I think that's no, such I'm a great not, I, name. I, yeah. And I'm sure you have lots of people who found you as a dog trainer, even with a name that's a little dissembling. Right. Well, sometimes you want to keep it a mystery. <laughs> I think mystery is good. Victoria, thank you so much for bringing up this topic and for being here and all the good you've done for dogs and people over the years. It means a great deal. And New York City is grateful to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support all of these companies because they stand behind my mission, which is to bring you delightfully informative Pet Talk Radio. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no-hide chews and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Weimaraner Maisie will eat. I'm very grateful also to Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two extraordinary women, Allison and Hannah, who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.